It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It's the podcast. It's David. It's, it's me and your man. How are you, Head? How are you doing? Are you well? I'm very good. Yeah. How about you? Well, my midlife crisis has been put on hold because I've decided to go for a... A chopper. A chopper. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Pimp my ride. I know. No, uh, I've got, decided I was going to go for, and it's really Mickey Mouse, a 50cc bike. I know, but no. then, I, then I just said to myself, nah, if you got the Vespa, it's got to be 125. So I've been caught in a Brexit dilemma. Oh, no. Because you've got to order the bikes in the UK, so it's going to take a couple of weeks. Right. But it then, might take more than a couple of weeks. But then I will be the ace face. <laughs> Quadrophenia. It'll be me going up and down. I'll be going to Tremor in my parka <laughs> on my Vespa. I'll jump on the back. That'd be exactly. brilliant. Anyways, all is good. No, but all is good. Funny hour week. Funny hour week. I want to talk about drugs this week, John. Well, just before you do, you know, a couple of weeks ago, last week actually, you were talking about the Dutch East India Company. I do. Well, I was reading around a couple of things and I came across a thing on the Dutch East India Company, which I found mightily fascinating. Me. You know, back in the kind of the early 20th century, Cocaine was used, you know, all over the place. They had, uh, you know... A co- bit like the early 21st century. Well, that's true too. <laughs> but, you know, it was in Coca-Cola and, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But you it was a to, stimulant. Yeah. And it was prescribed for all the soldiers in the, the First World War. But you used to be able to buy it also in a tablet form. And the brand name of that tablet form was called Forced March. No way. So you're marching marching powder. Colombian marching powder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's interesting that the main supplier of cocaine and coca plants to Europe was from Peru. Okay. Come the First World War, there was obviously a cut off in supply. Yeah. So the Dutch East India Company, together with some Dutch bank, set up a big plantation in Java or what? Java, that, Borneo. That, yeah, that, that was their part, part of the world. That yeah. was their part of the world. So yeah. they set it up there, and the Dutch East India Company, as a result, became the biggest supplier of cocaine into Europe. Into Europe. See, John, I have told you the Dutch have this extraordinary capacity to make money. They really, really yeah. do. You know, and uh, but actually, on the whole issue of drugs, what I want to talk to you about is 
why the war on drugs has been a total failure yeah. and needs to be changed. Yeah. But on the issue of state-sponsored drug peddling, mm. of course, the biggest example of that is the British peddling opium to the Chinese. Yes. So the opium wars. And if you talk to any person who's been educated in China, any Chinese person who's gone through the main Chinese schooling system, yeah. they focus hugely on this, what they call the 100 years of shame which yeah. is from 1840 to 1940. So about 1840, the beginning of the Opium War, to about late 1940s, the beginning of communism. This is what they called it. Caroline Kahn, wasn't it, we had on yeah, the podcast a while ago. we did have her, yeah, yeah. And did she, she talk spoke, about that as well? She spoke about that. Because she, she grew up in China, obviously, and, and the education system. And, and yeah, that's what she was saying. Well, that is. well, I mean, what they teach them is this idea that... So when people think about Chinese anti-Western feelings, mm. one of the major, major causes of this is the Opium War, which was what basically happened is the Brits went into China with all their second-rate goods from Sheffield <laughs> and Bolton <laughs> and said to the Chinese, Here, do you want to flog, do you want to buy any of this stuff? Yeah. And the Chinese looked and said, no, man, no, that's not for <laughs> us. We don't want this shit, right? So the Brits thought, oh, okay, they don't want our stuff. So we've got to sell them something. This is, this is from Hong Kong yeah. in the 1850s. Yeah. So he said, why don't we sell them opium? We'll make the opium in Pakistan, yeah. where it's still made. We'll package the whole stuff. We'll flog it to the Chinese. We'll create, think about this, a nation of addicts. Yeah. And this is how we will bring the Chinese down. It's an amazing what strategy, they did. isn't it? And that, so the opium war was basically selling heroin yeah. to create an addicted population in order to reduce the capacity of the Chinese to resist the British need and will to open up the Chinese market. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. Well, I'll tell you something else then about the British Army and drugs. I went off in a little, you know, down a rabbit hole during the week reading about this, but it was the Encyclopedia of World War One, I, I think it was. But they talked about in 1917, during the siege of... Uh, was it the siege of Jerusalem or the siege of Gaza? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, when the when the Brits were, yeah, and so, the French were against the Ottomans. Yes. Yeah. And the Ottomans were holding out for, for months and they couldn't break them down. So what the, what the British did was they flew over and just dropped loads of joints laced with opium. No apparently. way. Because there was a shortage of cigarettes in the city that the Ottomans were. Of course were, there was. And yeah. they're all gagging for a smoke. So, uh, so they dropped loads of cigarettes that were laced with opium, you know. So the, so the lads wrecked. went around, gathered it up, sparked up, had a big old party, and then the Brits attacked when they're all kind of chilled Wasted. out and eating crisps late at night. <laughs> late at night. Go to Domino's Pizza, but but that's how they broke them down, isn't that? That is that is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. <laughs> but on the serious note, on the serious note, John. The pandemic gives you a chance to take stock of things, okay? And says, hold on a second. Now you think, if we could close down the economy for a year, mm. and if we could... We did. <laughs> now, well, then can't we not think of other things we could do which would actually be of benefit to society? So the idea is, if you look at the war on drugs, what you see is the war on drugs was introduced mainly in the United States and then all across Europe in order to reduce supply. Mm. That's what's the objective, right? Yeah. And, of course, what it's done is the opposite. There are more drugs available everywhere than ever before, number one. Secondly, the cost of this 
to society is phenomenal. Yeah, right? it's huge, yeah. If you think about what is happening, if you could have engineered a situation to encourage gangsterism and the mafia, you couldn't think of a better way than the war on drugs. It's custom made to create mm. a serious, serious drug cartel Just like problem. prohibition in the 20s. So if you go back to the 1920s in the United States, the prohibition movement, it's very, it's very old in the States. It wasn't, it wasn't just in the 20s. It's emerging. It's, it's beginning in the late Victorian age. Right. It's quite sectarian and it is quite racist in its undertone. I mean, there are the evangelical folk who really believe that alcohol is a serious... The devil's buttermilk, as The Ian, devil's buttermilk? Ian Paisley said it once yeah. to a journalist. <laughs> I can smell the devil's buttermilk from your breath. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Good old Ian. It's great stuff. A little whistle at the end. Yeah. Anyway, so... So there, there were people really, but there was also, it was, there was like, there was a very anti-Irish part of the prohibition mm. and anti-German part of the prohibition, right? Because the Germans love beer. The Irish pretty much like beer too. So right, there was, right. and, yeah, and yeah. of course the other and thing, whiskey. and whiskey. And then there was the anti, anti-Italian, because the Italians came and they brought wine yeah. in big, big consumption in the United States. So the wasps kind of conceived of this as, and there was also a very, very anti-Chinese movement in the early part of the last century. And again, this was against opium dens. So the whole the whole prohibition yeah. idea comes. But what it does, John, is it just simply pushes, pushes the price up and you take a business that was legitimate, you make it illegitimate, mm. and you attract in a certain type of individual, a criminal, mm. for example. You criminalize the entire thing, but more importantly, by constricting the supply, and this is the economics of drugs, right? Mm. What you do is you drive up the price. If you drive up the price, you drive up the profits. If you drive up the profits, you attract in more and more people. But because the turf has become more valuable, the turf war between the gangs goes through the roof. Sure, yeah. Okay? And so therefore they get more violent and they get increasingly more violent. And what you see in Ireland, but all over the world, is these unbelievably, unspeakably violent gangs fighting over the turf. But the entire issue has been engineered by prohibition. Now, because you cannot stop people getting off their heads. Mm. Right? This is the first thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you may not like it, but it is, right? Yeah. Humans, if you go all the way back... I mean, it's the, a human condition. Well, the first evidence of weed is goes back thousands and thousands of years. Thousands well, and thousands of do, years. They do, yeah, it does, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the story of Jesus walking on water. Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny. So you see that guy walking yeah, on water? Yeah. It's a mirage, man. <laughs> But think about it. So humans have, whether moralists like it or not, have always wanted to alter their own heads, right? Mm. Whether it's booze or drugs or whatever. So that's the fact, right? If you decide that you're going to morally think this is a bad thing, and if you decide that what you're going to do is you're going to try and hit supply, all you'll do is drive up the price. Yeah. And once you drive up the price a whole new dynamic comes in. So, John, if you just think about Dublin, right? You've got drug gangs, so that increases dramatically the guards' budget to try and control these guys. Yeah. You have huge increase in petty criminality in order mm. to get money to buy the drugs. You have our prisons stuffed full of people on small-time drug offences. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember years ago, I tell you, I 
I uh, went into Mount Joy to teach a bit of economics a years ago, long, long time yeah. ago, the education department in Mount Joy. You do amazing things. They asked me to come in and teach an economics course to guys who were trying to basically do the leaving cert. Yeah. And How did that go? It was great. It was great. They were really interesting. It was really, like, you know, you go into the Joy, it's a really, really rough, rough vibe. The, what, what, you, what you notice in prison, even if you're in there as a teacher, is the capacity or the the risk of incidental violence is phenomenal, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And that puts you really on edge, irrespective of what you're doing there. And then it was very clear in the Did class. Did you feel threatened? No, you don't feel threatened, but you just know that, you know that this can kick off any time. Yeah, right? it's like walking into Knox Hall in 1982. Exactly, exactly, with the target on your back, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, but exactly that, right? Yeah. And then, so we... We sat in Knox Hall was a disco, by the yeah, way. Yeah, by the way, Knox Hall is a disco in Monkstown, named after John Knox, the Calvinist. Yes, the yes, Calvinist of preacher. Uh, this is where people from New Park used well, to be. Well, the Prohibitionists, I'm sure. It probably was, but people from New Park, which is a school around this neck of the woods, which was always cooler than other schools, were DJing. I always remember that, and their music was much better than anybody else's. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's getting very, very early new wave stuff. Anyway, I digress. Uh, we do. We, we do. do digress. But in, in, in the joy, so it was very clear, like the class was split into, there was a hierarchy, actually, in the mm. joy of prisoners. And it was very clear that the armed robber was the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. And I, one of them, this armed robber who was quite ahead, was talking to me about this. Then he said, and these OTC lots, you know, OTC? Over the counter. Right. Right? So these are fellas, heroin addicts, who jump over the counter, right. rob the thing. And there was a hierarchy, right? So now I was teaching OTC. economics. So the OTC lads are at the bottom. But anyway, the point is, it was very clear, the vast majority of the inmates in the joy are there for drug offences. Yeah. And small drug offences. And if you look at the numbers in 2019, the last time we've got records for it, right? Yeah. 2019 to 2020. In 2020, during the pandemic, Drug-related offensives have gone up by 8%. Okay. 22,641 cases, arrests, for small drug possession in this country, right? Just possession. 69% of all drug offences, 69% of the vast majority, are for possession for personal use, right? So what you're finding is the guards are going after small-time users. Yeah. The big-time guys aren't getting caught at all. This is clogging up the prison service. Yeah. It's clogging up the court service. It's hugely taxing for the guards themselves, right, in terms of overtime mm. and whatever. So if, if you look, so they're the figures in Ireland, but if you look at the figures Incredible, in the States, actually. and in the States, there's no reason to believe that what's happening in Ireland, the States is just a bigger version, they've got more data, but just in the total failure of the war on drugs, right? Since the late 1980s, America has spent over $1.5 trillion on the war on drugs. And the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency in America, believes it has been successful in stopping less than 1% of the drugs destined for the United States. Wow, that's a bad record. That is an extraordinary record, right? America has 5% of the world's population. Mm. It has 25% of the world's prison population. And the vast, vast majority of those are in small-time drug offences. Yeah. Right? Exactly the same here in Ireland. It says so, so much about America, doesn't it? It says so but, much, but it says so much about how the war on drugs yeah, yeah, yeah. has totally undermined society. 
and has incarcerated. You know, it's the same thing in Ireland you see in Mountjoy Prison, which is, John, JM's always telling you, say, where is Mountjoy? Yeah. The prison in Dublin. 75% of the inmates come from three postal codes in Dublin. Jesus. And it's all drug-related. Yeah. Right? So the question is, the pandemic gives you a chance to say, hold on a second, let's talk about the future. Prohibition has never worked. Mm-hmm. The one problem with prohibition, it creates the mafia. Yeah. The mafia creates its own problems. You stop prohibition, you stop the mafia, you stop the flow of money to these guys. Mm. So I think it's absolutely time now for the world to realize that the war on drugs has been a profound failure, has generated huge economic, social, emotional, psychological costs by criminalizing something that is a health issue in many, many cases, okay? In the extreme form, I'm talking about heroin addiction. But if you look at the whole gamut of drug taking, it would seem to me to be entirely logical now to legalize I think all drug taking, you might have a different issue. I do have and a bit of a different issue. To, to tax it like booze. Like it'll be like, you remember the old reliables in the budget? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a couple of years' time, it'll be like weed's going up by 20%, <laughs> for, you know, co- oh, cocaine, no. cocaine by 20%, smack by a little bit more, you know, the old reliables, right? But this is the same, like, think about the language we use for booze, which creates alcoholism yeah. on a huge, huge rate in this country. Actually, do you remember the other week you were telling us about when you were doing your thing for TV3, that you interviewed Woody Harrelson. On this very issue. I dug it out. Oh, do you have it? I do. Here, well, have a listen. Well, listen, it made sense then, and it makes sense still. If you look in the States, you had this drugs policy in the States is very similar to your policy on prohibition and alcohol in the 20s, which was a disaster, and produced, many would argue, the mafia in, in serious numbers. Why can't they look at prohibition and say, try this one, didn't work? Uh, and, and, and try something else. Well, the same is true of this war on drugs as is true on any war. It's, it wouldn't happen if it wasn't extremely lucrative for somebody. In the United States, they spend their own figures from arrest, which is 700,000 people a year for pot, uh, to incarceration, which, you know, there's millions of people incarcerated for it. Their figures are that they spend $101 billion a year. $101 billion. Now, if you think about Ted Turner gave a billion to the UN, that billion dollars will fund programs for generations and generations, you know. So if you think about how much $101 billion is, it's, uh, it's disgusting, you know. For, for a guy who's stoned off his box, very articulate. made a lot of sense. Yeah, he's really, really clever. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There seems to be a bit of a paradigm shift across the board, particularly in America. Most of the states have legalized. Some of them have places like, you know, Colorado and these sort of states. Yeah, no, no, definitely. no. But I mean, I mean, recently, like New Jersey just last week. But also I was reading there recently about David Beckham. The Dutch East India Company and David Beckham. The, the library has been <laughs> ransacked this week. David Beckham apparently is a shareholder or he's an investor in, in this company called Cellular Goods that use cannab- cannabioid. I have a real problem with that word. Hold on a second. Is that what happens when you're stoned? When you try to say cannabis? Cannabis. <laughs> give me some more crisps. <laughs> so he, cellular goods is actually a, a kind of a healthcare and skincare products for... Which we, which we both need. Oh, definitely. But for athletes, so maybe we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> for, for wannabe athletes. For couch leaves. But they, they raised something like 13 million euro and their share price shot up by 310%. They don't have any goods in the market yet. They're not coming out till September. But it's the whole kind of shift towards... Yeah, and, and that's a function, one, and something we'll talk about later on the podcast of lots and lots of money being around, but it's also that lifestyles are changing. And we've got to, we've got to figure out, you know, Canada in legalised weed, it seems to me to be the logical way to go. And the more you think about it, the more, like, if you look at what happens when you criminalise something, not only do you put it into the criminal elements and you encourage, and as I said before, if you could have conceived of a way to encourage and motivate criminals to get involved in a business, you couldn't have done it better, right? Mm. That's the first thing. Yeah. Because you have a demand which is always there. And you can track supply. It's like our housing market. Price just goes up. It's yeah. the same idea, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But the price itself acts as something else. The fact that the price itself goes up creates a very bizarre incentive for the drug gangs to supply more. Yeah. So the very increase in the price is sufficient to attract in more and more crims into the business. And then, of course, you've got the chain from the top guy down to the what they call the drug mule, right, and all the various mm. different things. But we are doing that. I'll give you another statistic from the States, which Do, is, yeah, which is yeah. amazing, hit me, right? Hit me with them. Between 2000 and 2010, okay, so it's a long time ago, right? This is the seizure of raw and prepared opium increased by more than 12 thousand percent in the u.s to put this another way the amount of opium seized in 2010 in the states was 57,023 kilograms that was 126 times the amount of opium seized in 1990 so the war on drugs holy moly so so, this is crazy and then if you if you go around dublin there's cocaine everywhere yeah so basically what you have is that also you've got all sorts of drug supply have not only not contracted, 
faced with the war on drugs, but they've increased yeah. everywhere, right? And Ireland is the same and the UK is the same. And yet, I think it's fair to say that if you even talk to law enforcement, right, to the cops, right, mm. or to government ministers or any economist worth their salt who could actually do something here, everyone would say privately, you know what, this isn't working. Yeah, it's creating disasters in the in the prisons. It's creating these gangs. It's creating violence in the streets. It's creating lots of petty criminals. Yada yada yada. So privately, people would admit it. But this is the real dilemma with running countries: is publicly, the state can't bring itself to admit what it would happily admit in private. So rather than change, we double down. It's the idea, you know, Galbraith said, when the conventional man is faced with the choice between changing his mind and finding the proof not to yeah. do so, he always gets busy looking for the proof. So we know it's not working. Yeah. And yet, in public, we continue to double down on the policy. Again, if we're really in a quoting mood, it's the Einstein thing, you know? The definition yeah. of stupidity, yeah. doing the same thing okay. over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah, with all the legalisation in Canada and in the States, and actually mostly around Europe as well, Certainly Portugal's more or less legalised, yeah, Spain, Spain, more or less. All yeah. that kind of stuff. So it, the more legalisation around the world surely will give a little bit more leeway or more encouragement to legalise here. I would hope so. I would hope so because I think, again, you legalise it, you tax it, yeah. you make it legitimate. The evidence from Canada is that there's not, you know, a lot of people say, Marty, well, you're just going to have everybody is going to be wrecked and stoned, right? Mm. The evidence from Canada is really modest. I'll actually, I'll give you the figures from Canada. Right. In 2019, there's more than 5.1 Canadians are six, nearly 17% of Canadians reported using cannabis in the three months before the survey. That's up from 15% in 2018. So you see a tiny increase, about 2%, 1 or 2%. Yeah pre- and post-legalization. So this idea that there's going to be a jamboree, it's nonsense, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. But my point is that we need to have a serious adult conversation in this country about drug taking and drug use. My feeling, and I know it's different to yours, is that we should legalize and control the supply and the stage supply of all drugs. And with the tax income you raise from those drugs, you should ring-fence that for drug rehabilitation for addicts. Because what is happening right now, if you go into the centre of town, all these addicts are regarded as criminals. Yeah. The profit from their usually robbing things is going directly to drug gangs, mm. is being recycled into all sorts of other businesses, but mainly back into the drug business because it's so profitable, right? Yeah. The state then is just picking up the pieces three or four stages behind the gangs and all the while more and more people are addicted and more and more people are marginalised. Whereas if we said, okay, this is an issue that humans have always wanted to get off their heads. We might not like it, but it's the fact. Mm. We're going to make sure that purity is something that we control. Yeah. Okay, that's the first thing. And of course, the evidence in the States is quite weird as well with respect to drug gangs, is that the more you criminalise, the purer the drug becomes. Yeah. Because the risk for the dealer is that if they get caught, they're going to go to prison. So they increase the purity in order to make sure that their market is stable and bigger. Right. So it's worth 
the risk. And it's worth going to prison for then. Exactly. So again, I think that we need to really apply basic economics to this and understand that what we've done is we've created an entire parallel universe under the umbrella of the war on drugs, which has failed monumentally, monumentally. And I think if we tax drugs and if we then used the income from that to be ring-fenced to the extreme issue, it's a bit like mm. which is the heroin addict or the coke addict, and used and said that person is sick, that person is unhealthy, that person needs to be actually helped out of addiction, yeah. as we do with alcoholics. Well, you know, it's interesting to say that because... Do you remember myself, Mark and Edo, we did a animation for Facing Addiction, which is a charity in the States. Which is oh, yeah, a, yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah. And it's mainly geared towards, you mentioned earlier there about opium. A large part of that rise in opium use was actually down to doctors themselves over-prescribing yeah. painkillers. Oxycontin and all those sort of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The highly addictive stuff, when people come off that, so they substitute with... Street heroin. Yeah. And that has been one of the biggest problems in the States over the last while. So you, what you do is you say, okay, we have this issue. Humans, whether we like it or not, like to get off their heads. The more your life is spiraling out of control, the more likely you are to mm. want to get off your head, to block it out. So poverty, lack of education, lack of opportunity. You know, it's not for no reason that heroin addiction is highly localised in Ireland in very poor areas mm. because the the cost of getting off your head is much less significant. Well, we also talked about the Rat Park experiment. you remember that yeah. a while ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, if, if people aren't being mentally stimulated enough, they look for other stimulants. Exactly. So why don't we realise, look, look at this in the totality. You have economic, social deprivation all coming together which manifests itself personally in people feeling, well, you know what? I just want to block this stuff out. Mm. Then you have the local gang on the street, highly incentivized because of the price and the illegality to actually sell drugs. Mm. Then you end up with somebody being addicted, but that person, rather than being seen as somebody who's got a health problem, is seen as a criminal. Yeah. So you put that person in prison yeah. and you fill up the prisons and you fill them up and you fill them up and all the while the gangs keep supplying more and more. Yeah. yeah. And that, when I was teaching in Mount Joy, that really struck me was the downward spiral and then the cul-de-sac these guys are trapped in. Yeah. So the guys I was teaching were trying to do economics for the leaving cert, right? And they were really trying. And, you know, economics is tricky and it's tricky enough, but you could see the dynamic that was there in the room, which was, if we don't get out of here, if we don't get out of this cul-de-sac that we have waltzed ourselves up or been waltzed up or find ourselves in, mm. we have no other way of making a living when we get out because of a criminal record. Yeah. We've been hanging around with crims. Imagine the conversations in prison. Yeah. Right? We hang around with crims. Our network has become criminalised. Our personal network has become criminalised. And the chances of us getting back on our feet and maybe doing, let's say, getting onto one of those sure, trusts yeah. that you can actually, you know, a drug counselling way out are very, very slim. Much, much easier to fall back into what you know. So what then you get is you criminalise generations. Yeah. And you criminalise whole areas. There was actually a, a very interesting article written 
last week by Kitty Holland in the Irish Times about the north inner city, right. the northeast inner city, and just that nexus of poverty, lack of opportunity, feeling completely abandoned by the rest of the city, and then the drug gangs and the attraction of running drugs when you're 15, 16, because you're the man, you know, you've got the yeah. Gucci kit, yeah. you're the man, you've got a few quid in your arse pocket, but you're actually getting sucked in deeper and deeper into a criminal conspiracy, which only ends up in one yeah. way. Either you go to prison or you end up deeper and deeper in the gang, being forced to do more and more unspeakable things. And it's all because we've decided to criminalise something that if we decriminalised it, we'd take out the entire incentive for that parallel universe to exist. Yeah. And you can say, okay, we won't do anything about it. Or you can have these conversations like adults to say, you know, maybe it's time to legalise weed and to begin to legalise all other drugs, tax them. The state becomes the main supplier. And what you do is you take out the incentive for the gangs to both terrorise people, number one, but also, also to have a huge amount of the population, the young population, really by the balls, which is what's happened. But you know, you know what's kind of ironic as well is that the whole lockdown during this pandemic was designed to protect the vulnerable. But this part of society is also the vulnerable. And maybe we need to start thinking along those lines now as well. Absolutely. They're A, they're the vulnerable, and B, they're the preyed on. Yeah. And they are the victims in all this. Not the general society, but a small part. And again, when it comes to weed and pills and coke and heroin, all this sort of thing, we need to just rethink the way we deal with the whole thing. Yeah. You know, just before Canada legalised marijuana, I, I came across an article and I sent it to Al and said, what do you think of this? It was about investing in shares in grow farms, whatever. So we ended up not doing it, thankfully, because apparently when it was floated, it completely crashed. But we operated under the project name of Project Pension Pot. <laughs> Which didn't work. Well, I will tell you, I'll tell you, the last Canada story with respect to weed. I worked in Canada many years ago as about an 18-year-old yeah. And I went to Canada for one of the summers. And it was just amazing. You're in Toronto, you're an Irish kid, you didn't know what the hell's going on. And of course, the weed is much stronger in Canada, even yeah. back then, yeah. right? Yeah. And there was a thing in Toronto called the CN Tower, which is this extraordinary building, I think built in the 70s, one of the tallest buildings, yeah. a huge thing, right? And on my 19th birthday, or was it eight, actually my 18th birthday, I decided... You were barely legal yourself. I know, it's, it's mad, isn't it? 18, 19, I decided what we were going to do is there was a bar on the top of it and we were going to go up and have a drink in the bar. <laughs> but the problem is the lads skinned up beforehand and I didn't know I had vertigo until oh. we were about, it seemed to me, like a mile up in a glass lift, stoned. <laughs> In the wind, the thing is going around like this. Did you have a freak out? Complete. Like you know the you know the you know the you know the sort of general paranoia you have when you're stoned? Yeah. I have had I obviously had vertigo. Yeah. And I didn't realise it until I was up halfway up in the glass box, off me box, in the biggest building in the world. Hello! Hello! 
My name's Terry and I'm a law abider. There's nothing I like more than getting fired up on beer. And when the weekend's here, I exercise my right to get paralytic and fight. Good bloke, fairly. But I get well leery when geezers look at me funny. Bouncing round like bunnies. I'm likely to cause mischief. Good clean grief, you must believe, and I ain't no thief. Law abiding and all, all legal. And who cares about my liver when it feels good? What you need some real manhood. Rasha, rasha, burning casher. Putting people's backs up. Public disorder, I'll give you public disorder. I down eight pints and run all over the place. Spit in the face of an officer. See if that bothers you. Cause I never broke a law in my life. Someday I'm gonna settle down with a wife. Come on, lads, let's um, have another hello. fight. My name's Tim and I'm a criminal. In the eyes of society, I need to be in jail. For the choice of herbs I inhale. This ain't no wholesale operation. Just a few eights and some PlayStation's my vocation. I pose a threat to the nation. And down the station, the police hold no patience. Let's talk space and time. I like to get deep sometimes and think about Einstein and Carl Jung. And old kung fu movies I like to see. Pass the hydrator, please. <sighs> yeah, I'm floating on thin air. Going to Amsterdam in the new year. Top gear there. Because I take pride in my hobby. I home make bongs using my engineering degree. Dear leaders... Please legalise weed for these reasons. Like I was saying to him, I told him, swap with me and you won't live. So I smacked him in the head and downed another Carlin. Bada bada bing, full of that's like. Mad fight, his face a sad sight, vodka and snake bite. Going on like a right geese, he's a twat. Shouldn't have looked at me like that. Anyway, I'm an upstanding citizen. If a war came along, I'd be on the front line with them. Can't stand crime either, them hooligans on heroin. Drugs and criminal, those thugs are the pinnacle of the downfall of society. I got all the anger pent up inside of me. No, I don't see why I should be the criminal. How can something with no recorded fatalities be illegal? And how many deaths are there per year from alcohol? I just completed Gran Turismo on the hardest setting. We pose no threat on my settee. Oh, the pizza's here. Will someone let him in, please? We didn't order chicken. Not a problem, we'll pick it out. I doubt they meant to mess us about. After all, we're all adults, not louts. As I was saying, we're friendly, peaceful people. We're not the ones out there causing trouble. We just sit in this hazy bubble with our quarters, discussing how beautiful Gail Porter is. MTV BBC Two Channel 4 is on till six in the morning. And then six in the morning, the sun dawns and it's my bedtime. Causing trouble? You're stinking rabble, boys. Saying I'm the lad who's spoiling it. You're on drugs. Really bugs me when people try and tell me I'm a thug. Just for getting drunk. I like getting drunk. Because I'm an upstanding citizen. If a war came along, I'd be on the front line with them. Now, Terry, you're repeating yourself. But that's okay, drunk people can't help that. A chemical reaction happening inside your brain causes you to forget what you're saying. What? I know exactly what I'm saying. I'm perfectly sane. You stinking student lame go get a job and stop robbing us of our taxes. Um, well, actually, according to research, government funding for further education pales in insignificance when compared to how much they spend on repairing leery drunk people at the weekend in casualty wards all over the land. Why, you cheeky little swine, come here! I'm gonna batter you! Come here!